The reading this morning is uh, Matthew 5 on page 1506, verses 21 to 26. 1506 in the red book. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Karen. It'd be great to keep that passage open in the Bibles. And on the back of your service sheets, it's not really an outline. I haven't really got points to the talk, but three questions that might help guide uh, through the sermon this morning. But let's pray together, shall we? Spirit of truth who pierces my heart, breathe in me. He who hovered over the birth of the waters, bring forth the birth of my soul. Remind me that he who set me free will make me whole. We pray, Lord Jesus, that your words this morning, uh, though they may pierce our souls, would, would heal us and make us whole. That you would grow your kingdom in us for your glory's sake. Amen. This is our fifth week, I think, in the Sermon on the Mount. We haven't got very far. We're going slow, which I'm really enjoying. And the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom, all about the kingdom of heaven. It's not about how to live in order to enter the kingdom. As Jesus sets out these commands, these instructions, he's not saying, do this and then you can get into the kingdom. No, entry to the kingdom is a gift for those who believe in Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount sets out the values, the virtues, the, the characteristics of Jesus' kingdom. For those who have come in under Jesus' good and powerful rule, this is the life that will grow in them and out of them. In the section this morning, Jesus is teaching about how the kingdom transforms relationships, heals broken relationships. Great sadness and misery, aren't they? Uh, we make fun of them. Our sitcoms are full of them. We, we laugh. I was reminded recently of um, the broken relationship between Winston Churchill and Lady Astor. Uh, Lady Astor was the first female prime minister in the UK, uh, not prime minister, member of parliament in, in the UK, uh, back in 1919. And Churchill was offended by having a woman uh, come into the parliament and said, 
I find a woman's intrusion into the House of Commons as embarrassing as if she burst into my bathroom when I had nothing to defend myself with, not even a sponge. <laughs> to which Lady Astor replied, Churchill, you are not handsome enough to have worries of that kind. Um, so in the Parliament, he would ignore her and be unkind about her. She heckled him in his speeches. At one social event, she said, Churchill, you're drunk. To which he replied, yes, madam. And you are ugly, but in the morning I will be sober. Uh, Asta said, Churchill, if I was your wife, I'd put cyanide in your coffee. To which he replied, Madam, if I was your husband, I'd drink it. Broken relationships are, are funny. We laugh at them unless we're going through them, unless we're on the receiving end of those kinds of insults and put-downs. Jesus says, my kingdom can transform broken relationships. In the section that we're looking at in the season of Lent leading up to Easter, Jesus is teaching us about the law. And he seems to be responding to people who were saying something like, uh, Jesus, we love what you're teaching. It all seems quite new. It's a breath of fresh air. But how does what you're saying relate to what's come before, to the Old Testament? And in verse 17, Jesus says, do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We saw a couple of weeks ago that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in a number of ways. He fulfills it in his life. He fulfills the Old Testament promises, and he keeps the Old Testament law perfectly. He also fulfills the Old Testament in his death. He pays the penalty that the law demands. He pays on our behalf as he dies in our place. And Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in his teaching as he explains what the Old Testament really means. Six times in this section that we're working through, you have that phrase, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you. In other words, you've heard how the religious leaders have interpreted the law, how they've distorted it and softened its demands, but I'm telling you what it really means. And that's what we have here. Jesus gives his attention in this little section to the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Do not murder. And we might think, great, seems fairly straightforward. I don't think many people here uh, need to pay much attention to that command. You know, do not murder, tick. That's certainly how the religious leaders seem to understand it. As long as you haven't physically destroyed someone else's life, you are free from guilt, at least in respect to this command. Jesus says, no way. No way. That the command not to murder was always about much more than taking someone's physical life. What Jesus seems to be saying is, in the law, every command not to do something carries within it the positive opposite. So, for example, do not steal doesn't just mean don't steal. It means be generous. Do not lie means tell the truth, always. Do not covet means be content with what you have. And so here, do not murder means we're to treat people with love. To recognize that every person is infinitely precious, made in the image of God, worthy of love and dignity. The principle here, I think, is that 
A lack of love is murder. A lack of love is murder. Jesus gives three examples of how we can be guilty of breaking this command. Firstly, anger, resentment, bitterness in our hearts towards another person. Maybe it's the neighbor who's having a loud party late at night. Maybe it's the other driver who cuts you up in traffic. Maybe it's the spouse who never cleans up after themselves. Maybe it's the child who disobeys you with a defiant grin on their face. Just hypothetically. If you played the game Cluedo, you can use to murder pers- another person. So a gun, or revolver, and a dagger, and a rope, and a candlestick, or a, a piece of lead pipe. But Jesus is saying, all you really need is a heart. A hateful, resentful heart. But there's more. Jesus says, anyone who says raka, or you fool, is guilty. The word for fool is moros. Pretty obvious. It's where we get the word moron from. Jesus is saying, with your words, with your insults, you can murder someone's reputation. You can, you can cause a wound in a place in someone's heart that no surgeon can reach. The word raka means you nobody. Here Jesus isn't talking so much about hostility as indifference, neglect. Seeing someone as unworthy of your attention, just a nobody, less important than you. Jesus is talking here about scorn and and pride. I'm guilty of breaking this command if I lack love. We talked last week about what love is, how we would define it. And maybe part of the definition should include the fact that love sees other people's needs as more important than my own. But pride eats up love. If I feel superior to you, if I see you as less important than me, then I'm failing in love towards you. I'm denying you of your dignity, your value in God's eyes. By withholding love from you, I'm denying you life. And I'm guilty of breaking this command. We live in the murder capital of Australia, here in Adelaide. But there's actually far more going on than the advertiser reports. I guess we're horrified when we see or hear about the latest mass shooting. But are we horrified by what we see in our own hearts? We may not have actually committed murder, but can we see that the seeds of murder are there? Everything that makes a murderer a murderer is present in my heart. It just hasn't had the right conditions, the right provocations to result in that ultimate step. You know, people sometimes try to justify themselves. I would never do that. I'd never actually take someone else's life. I think the Christian says, no, I could do that. I see that the only difference between me and the murderer is one of degree and grace. Degree because 
I may not have robbed someone of their physical life, but I have robbed them of their dignity and grace because the only reason I haven't committed murder is God's grace. You know, when you see the photo of a murderer up on the screen, what do you see? Do you look down on that other person? Do you see them as a a different breed? Or do you say, there but for the grace of God, go I? Now at this point you might be thinking, okay, Ben, steady on. Now, feeling angry towards another person, yeah, not great, but come on, it's not that serious. Look again at what Jesus said. Verse 20, 21. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgments. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgments. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Many people want to dismiss the idea of hell. It's it's old-fashioned. It's just a way that people used to try and keep people in check. Problem is, who says this? Jesus, the most kind and gentle person ever. And this isn't an isolated occasion. Jesus talks more about hell than any other person in the Bible. He's not trying to scare us, but he is wanting to warn us. And it's sobering, isn't it? We may not feel deeply convicted by our angry hearts or our insulting words. Our indifference towards other people, our bitterness, the way that we speak to them and put them down, deserves hell. When our daughter Katie does something wrong, she sometimes asks, is God going to punish me for this? Is God going to punish me? And we always want to assure her, no, God is not going to punish you. God is your father and he will love you always. But I think it's also helpful for us to say the only reason that God is not going to punish you is because Jesus was punished in your place. The purpose of the law is to convict us, expose our flaws, show us our need. Remember the the cross diagram? Purpose of the law is to grow our awareness of the depths of our sin and the holiness of God to show us how far we fall short. But the purpose of the law is also to lead us to Christ. The one who kept this law and every law perfectly who treated everyone with love and dignity, and the one who on the cross took the place of the guilty and endured the agonies of hell on behalf of you and on behalf of me. He made himself nothing. He became an object of scorn so that you and I could be honored and blessed as children of God and members of his kingdom. 
as the song lyrics say. My Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free? Amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice. The Son of God given for me. My debt he pays and my death he dies that I might live. When you've experienced that, when you've experienced the gospel, when you've had that conviction of sin, of your great need, and you've experienced the amazing love of Jesus who pays your debt and dies your death, it changes you. It humbles you. changes your attitude to others. Where there was pride and superiority, there's now compassion. The undeserved love that you've received compels you out to others in love, love to the least and the last and the last. You know, in the kingdom of God, the lowly are honored. People who are not valued by the world should be valued in the church. And the peace that you've been given, the, the restored, reconciled relationship that you have with the Father, that too compels you out to seek peace and reconciliation with others. In the kingdom of God, conflicts are dealt with. Forgiveness is offered. Relationships are restored. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, or you're walking into worship, or you're preparing to celebrate communion, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Stop what you're doing. First go and be reconciled to your brother or sister. Then come and worship. Let me lead us in prayer. And give you a moment to reflect in quiet. Lord Jesus, your words cut deep, but they cut in order to heal. Please convict us and lead us in true repentance. Assure us of your forgiveness and transform us by your grace. Please help us to be people who heal relationships, who show honor to all people. Show us what that means in our lives as individuals and as a community. May your kingdom grow more and more in us and amongst us here at Barney's. For the glory of your name. Amen.